When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Art of Charm podcast. I'm AJ. And I'm Johnny. Today, we are going to be bringing you the best moments from 2018. Parts of our podcast episodes that you told us that was most liked and that you loved. And here they are. We'll play some clips from each episode, but before we do... We're working on some new episodes for the next year, and we want to include you in that process. So take a moment during the holiday break and think about what you'd love to hear us tackle in 2019. Maybe it's how to manage the relationships in your life or how to better define what makes you happy. Whatever it is, let us know. You can easily do that by going over to theartofcharm.com slash questions. You can find us on Instagram. We're at The Art of Charm. You can also find me there as well. I'm AOC Johnny, and AJ is there too. At AJ Harbinger. All right, let's go. I think we got to start with David Goggins. That interview was solid the whole way through. So let's jump in and listen to a bit of that. For most of our listeners, having heard your backstory, your list of accomplishments at this point seem unreal to them right obviously going through ultra marathon running logging the miles you've logged the chin-ups everything that you've done physically right when most people hear it they're like well that's impossible that was my first thought that mantra of whatever you don't like doing do it right love it do something you fucking hate every day true thing is is jarring for most people to hear yes because most of us seek out our comfort zone Mm -hmm. And for you, your comfort zone with dealing with some social anxiety and introversion is to turn inward. Right. So how have you been able to rebuild yourself? Because one of the mantras we hear in your videos is, I built this motherfucker. Right. So I take a lot of passion in who I am as a person. As you hear, as this podcast gets going and going and going, what you're going to do is you're going to transform me from this guy right now that's kind of chilled out in this room, David Goggins to Goggins. And I had to invent this person. David Goggins is an introverted, soft kid that got beat up growing up and mindset, had, had to lie to create friends, to get friends, to be accepted. So um, my life has really been about two people. Very scary, but two people. I had to invent a whole another human being to get outside of my comfort zone. And that human being became Goggins. Goggins is like the guy that walks out of the out of the phone booth. He's like that Superman that walks out of the phone booth. And I was talking to my fiance today about, it's kind of strange how sometimes 
I have a conversation between David Goggins and Goggins. And Goggins will tell David Goggins about the shit he's done. And David Goggins like, what the hell, man? Why are you doing that? That's nuts. So it's, it's kind of this battle between trying to find more of yourself, knowing that the real you is afraid, likes comfort, likes living in a world that is a, that likes to pat you on the back, give you the things that you want to hear, not the things that you have to hear to get better. Because every day I wake up, I dread the day. I dread the day of what I'm going to bring on myself to get better. A lot of us have multiple moments like that in our lives. And most of us choose the easier route to right. quit. You know, some of us get coaches and mentors and trainers that kind of help us push through that. Right. You're sitting there on the couch. It's you. Right. There's no one, there's no seal yelling in your no. ear saying, get the fuck up. We got to do this. Well, that's what I realized for myself was I wanted that comfort zone that everybody looks for, that pat on the back. They don't want to hear all the bad shit. They want to hear everything that they're doing right. And I realized that's what kept me in this world. That's what kept me in this world of not accomplishing anything. So what I did was, I became that big, bad, nasty motherfucker that you don't want to walk into at nighttime. I became the roughest critic in the world on myself. And that's what changed me. I literally saw myself in the mirror. I saw the truth versus saying, you know, my dad did this to me from, you know, from beating me. Kids in school from calling me nigger did this to me. My life did this to me. My fucked up, broken foundation did this to me. I took that and said, you know what? Well, some people may help this happen, but now I have to own this. No one's going to come back to save me. No one's going to come back on this fucking couch and say, hey, it's okay. You're going to be okay. No, I'm not. I'm not going to be okay. I, I had to realize I had to take a stand. I, I, I had to make a real stand. And it was painful to look at who I, like who I was, what the world and myself created. It created a... A, a, a very lonely, depressed, insecure man that would do anything just to have a friend. And I saw that as very pathetic. When you look at the truth, it becomes very ugly and pathetic. So you lose the weight, you show back up at the recruiter's office. Right. He's got to be su surprised all hell. <laughs> Did he well, even recognize you? Well, what happened was, in the real story, how that happens is, I would call this guy up at almost every night about 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night and give him an update. Wow. I said, hey, man, I've lost 25 fucking pounds because no one knew what I was doing. Yeah. I had to I had to have some. So I'm really good at creating an enemy. I'm really good at creating something that I'm against. And I'm also good at if you ever tell me something that I cannot do, I'm going to let you know that I'm doing it. Right. Somehow, somehow you're going to fucking know one way or another that I'm doing it. It may not be like in your face. I may make sure that I run across the daggone world. So then it's on the news and you turn the news on and say, how the hell <laughs> did he do that? I want to do something that, you know, I'm here. I'm here. So every, every time I lose like a big significant amount of weight, I call that recruiter up and say, Hey man, I'm here. I'm here. And before I knew it, man, this guy became almost like my best friend at that time because he started seeing, I started actually changing his life. You know, I started, you know, he started seeing, wow, man, like I'm glad I took a shot on this guy. 
Right. And not only did I lose weight, I had to go back and take the ASVAB test to give us like a watered down SAT a couple more times just to get in the Navy SEAL. So it was a big process. So that, so that three months was packed full of like failures, depression, even more. But what I found out in that whole three months, I lived a lifetime in that three months. I started realizing if I can flip, if I can flip these insecurities upside down, if I can flip this fear if I can flip all this shit that made me this depressed, insecure guy, if I can flip it and make it work for me versus against me, I started seeing the power, the power in failure, the power in insecurity, the power in self-doubt, and be able to overcome all this shit. I started using that as power. And I slowly started passing the guys from Harvard, the guys from MIT, the guys who were these great from great families and shit. I'm like, oh my God, I'm catching up. I'm catching up. I had nothing. So I started flipping it and using this power. Let's say we're in the sand, we're running or whatever. I will do a surge. I will do something. And everybody's like, how the fuck is he doing this? And from that, that look on their face, that feeling of God, man, this guy must be something, something special. It then surges me further and further and faster and harder for a long time. So it's energies everywhere. But the thing is, it's so loud that 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 voice in your head of pain and suffering and discomfort and I don't want to do this is so loud that you're unable to really calm it down and say, okay, there's something here. It's a patient calm that you have to bring yourself to say, I know I have something here, but that voice is so powerful that it just wants you just to let's leave. Right. We're done. We're done. It's, it spazzes you out and you want to go versus saying, Let's take a second. Hang on. Before we spaz the fuck out, hang on. And in that moment, you can think clearly and find that strength out there for you. And I feel like there's the physical governor that your body kicks in and says, I can't do this. And then there's the mental governor. Right. And a lot of us allow the mental governor to kick in far earlier than necessary. Right. And I've always found that at the moment that that kicks in and you push the other side of it, mm-hmm. you actually get this surge of physical energy. That's right. Of feeling that capable of anything, that right. superhuman power. But most of us try to avoid even getting close to the governor. Right. I call that my 40% rule, where like a car has a governor on it. It can go 130. You know, the governor's only going to go 91. Right. And the whole thing about that is a true statement, you know, like, like what you said, our mind wants to protect us. The mind is like, honestly, it has a tactical advantage over us. It knows our deepest, darkest fears or insecurities. It knows where we start to feel, we start getting that doubt creeping. It says, hey man, you know what, man? Maybe this isn't good. Let's go back home to the wife. Let's go back home to the kids. This is not comfortable. So in that moment, the mind directs us. It's a protective mechanism. It saves us for doing bodily harm or, or, it really saves us from discovering that the mind's like, I want to be in charge of you. I don't want you to be in charge of me. So it tells you, let's just stop right here. But once you start breaking through that barrier and start breaking down that governor, that governor that you've put in your mind, because we forget we are in control of our mind. We believe it's the other way around. No, we put in our minds what we should do but we believe our mind is telling us, it's it's giving us all this feedback. We have to reprogram it and tell us, no, 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 we're good. 
we're good. We got it. This sucks, but it's okay. And I think one of the remarkable things about the transformation in the beginning was, you know, here after completing over 60 ultra marathons, you, it seems like you're genetically gifted. Miles are no problem. But at the start, getting just over a mile was a struggle. Yeah. And quit was at the forefront of your mind the entire time. Mm -hmm. So for our listeners who are like, man, I can't run that. I can't do this physical stuff. Like that's great mental toughness, but I, I'm not even meant for the, the physical side of things. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit to us about that mile marker one, mile marker two, to now looking for unlimited miles. Right. Well, the first big thing is, once again, it goes back to open-mindedness. If you walk into any kind of event, whether it be physical or mental, if you walk in with already putting that block on your mind, if man, this ain't going to happen. People go, how did you run 135 miles to death valley? How did you run 100 miles with no training? Because I went into it not thinking, I can't do this, man. I went into it with a strategy. I had an open-mindedness. So until your mind is open to the possibilities that I can do this, you would never be able to do it. Once the mind starts to believe it can be achieved, it then, only then, does it start to break down tactically how we can do this. Until then, you're going to always lose. One of the things that we keep hearing recurring and something that we've practiced and we've talked about in our classrooms and on the show a lot is the most successful people are have a very good relationship with the worst parts of themselves where they can have that conversation and they're not hiding from that person. They're going to work with that person or to get around that person to get that person out of the way rather than pretending that it doesn't exist. And something else to this is I would think, at least from my own experience, there's always these rationalizations to get you to quit, right? right. So we have... First, you're going out there, it's the quarter mile that's failure, then we're getting to a mile, then we're getting... There's got to be another conversation with that the other side of you that says, listen, you went from a 300-pound guy to doing this. We're good. We, we showed a lot of people. And it, what's there's another conversation of, we ain't even begun to finish up what we're doing here. Right. And how many of those conversations, it's like on a daily basis, dude, you have to cast that person aside. Let's look out. You, you're done here. Right. You've done enough damage. It's my turn. Well, it's funny how you say that because it is a true thing. I have so many conversations in my mind because so many times I want to quit. Sure. But this is what it is. This is what I figured out. I was so afraid of myself that I had to figure out I became a master of my mind. When you're afraid of something, you have to master it. That's how you start to overcome it. So what I realized, when I get to that point where I want to quit, everybody, they get to the point where they want to quit. This is what happens. The mind tells you, let's go home. Let's take a warm shower. Let's get some food. This is not right. This is that. If you cannot answer the questions at that moment, because your mind's going to start giving you all these questions, all these questions, and if you can't answer them, you're going to quit. What I realized when I was going through Bud's, Ranger School, all this 100-mile race, 200-mile races, pull-up records, my mind would come creeping in. Like when I was doing 4,030 pull-ups at, at, at 2,000 pull-ups and my hands were ripped <laughs> open, my mind said, look, brother, we've done all these other things. You've proven yourself. You're good. 
if I didn't have the answer to respond to my mind and say, why I'm here, why I'm doing this, you will always lose that fight. You have to have the response to what your mind is going to tell you. And another thing about that is self-talk. A lot of people have like these big four on mental toughness. All that shit is crap about self-talk, visualization. It's true. But the thing about self-talk and all these things, they ask me, what do you think about when you're on mile 100 of a 205-mile run? What are you thinking about when you realize you've run for 24 hours and you have 24 more hours to run and you have another 105 miles? What goes through your mind? What do you say to yourself? I want to know. A lot of people think self-talk works. It does, but it doesn't work without the suffering before your mind starts saying we need self-talk. So what I tell myself is I go back to the months and years of preparation to get to that day. And I'm telling myself the 3.30 in the morning and I'm looking at my shoes and I want to go out there and run 30 miles. I have to in that second, in that moment of this self-talk, my mind saying, you got to find more, you got to find more. I once again, calm down, go back into my mind in my cookie jar, I call it. And I have to reflect back on the shit I did to get here. And that becomes my self-talk. Self-talk does not work unless it is real. Most of us lie to ourselves in the self-talk. It doesn't work. It has to be real. It has to be something that you've done to make it really work. Now, obviously, gaining that much weight doesn't happen overnight. Right. Bad habits had to form around eating, your interactions with food, obviously, mm-hmm. your lack of exercise. Right. How did you start to break those old habits so that you didn't revert back to yourself on the couch, right? It's easy to set a challenge. I want to reach this goal. I want to get through hell week. Most of us, even with diet and exercise, can start, get to a point, and then we tend to revert back to those old habits. Right. The reason why we go back to old habits is because our goals are too lofty. We're not achieving our goals fast enough. So what happens is, you know what? Oh, man, we're very impatient nowadays. For me, it was good. I didn't have a phone. I was out of this world by myself. It was a race against David Goggins. It wasn't a race against, God, I want to look good for this person or that person. It was me. I got to change myself. So for me, if I lost five pounds in a week, I got a feeling. I allowed myself to feel proud of that. I didn't look at I got to lose 106 pounds. I'm like, man, I went from 297. Now I'm 292. In one week, man, I'm, I'm killing it. We're not proud of ourselves for the small accomplishments. What we need is we need this monstrosity of the thing to happen and say, ah, I did it. Nah. There's a process that you have to go through, and patience is the process. And if we don't have patience, after a week, I haven't lost 30 pounds, man, I'm done. I'm over it. So that's what I found out with people, man. They're not patient enough to realize and to enjoy the moment, not live in it, just enjoy it. There's no finish line in life. But enjoy that moment. Roger that, man, I lost five. Let me go 10 next week. So that's the whole thing about it. That's how people lose it. You said that you were in this race with yourself and that you didn't have a phone and you weren't connected to anything else and you didn't have anything to deal with except that other person staring back at you and talking shit and it was that you went to war against that person right we were just talking about this and about how important it is in order for you to find yourself we've 
Absolutely, there's certainly about suffering or pushing limits as one aspect of it, but also a detachment from all these other influences that are not that keep you from dealing with yourself. And obviously, we're living in this world today with with all this technology that supposedly keeps us connected, but also sort of keeps us separated as well. It's a crazy place. And how are you going to build a relationship with yourself if you're completely distracted all the time? You know what? Being accepted is one thing that killed me. And you have to learn what do you want in your life? We have so much influence coming at us that we are so lost. We don't know what we want to do because we don't spend enough time with ourselves. You have to learn to shut off a phone, shut off a computer, shut off a TV. And it's okay to sit in a room by yourself in a chair and just think about you where I want to be, where do I see myself tomorrow, the next year, the next year from that. And it takes a lot of self-discipline to be able to do that nowadays because you want to be so so attached to everything. You want to be so caught up with the world. The world's moving too fast. The world's moving so fast that you're trying to keep up to the point where you lose yourself in the world. So you have to take that time and go to that dark place in your mind and discover who you are. Was there a time in your past where you realize that you've overcome your old self and really truly felt transformed? Or do you feel like it's an endless process that you're still building towards? It's an endless process. Endless process. All that shit that I went through in my life to get here today, it is tattooed. It is tattooed in my brain. Every day I wake up, I am constantly battling that person that is like, man, you know, Back in the day, this happened to you, man. You know, like, you got called nigger so many times, and your dad beat the shit out of you, man. And, you know, you you couldn't read, and this dad going junior year. All these things start to creep up, even now where you're at today. Every day, you're having to constantly battle. It's not as bad as it used to be by any means, but that person's still there. That person always lives. And that's the, that's the point about you have to continue to always challenge yourself every day. What an amazing interview. That was probably one of my favorites for the year. He is an amazing guy, and I'm still getting hit up about friends of mine who have found that interview and loved it. I got to say, having answers prepared for those questions in your head before you go into that suffering is a fantastic tip. It's a must listen, so check it out, episode 730. Next up, Stephen Hayes. We're so excited to have Dr. Stephen Hayes with us today author of Is Self-Compassion More Important Than Self-Esteem? Professor at the University of Nevada. He's one of the most distinguished and impactful psychologists of all time. He's written over 40 books and published nearly 600 scientific articles. He's one of the founding fathers of acceptance and commitment therapy and a huge part of our training programs here at The Art of Charm. It's great to have you with us here. In the article, you write about self-esteem, a term that gets thrown around a lot these days, and everyone seems to be fascinated with gaining more self-esteem, especially in the self-development field. However, science is starting to look at it in a little more critical way, and I think some of our listeners may not even be up to speed on the science behind it. But before we get to what the problem is, could you explain to our listeners what self-esteem is? Well, the way it's usually thought about is just those positive judgments that you make of yourself and holding yourself in high self-regard. And we know that 
people who are successful in life and are moving ahead very often have more positive opinions about themselves and their role in, in life, their relationships, how they're doing at work and so forth. And the, the psychologist grabbed on that and said, okay, that's why they're successful. Let's just see if we can drive that thing up and then people will do a lot better. Turns out that's not true, but it wasn't deliberately wrong. It just turned out to be catastrophically wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it, they were coming from the right place. And obviously, yeah. looking broadly at success, you would think that if you hold yourself in high regard, you're going to be able to accomplish great feats. Yeah, it would look like that. The problem is you can get that in artificial ways. But yeah, every parent, every teacher, everybody looking at a young person, when they see the voice within begin to come in and wag a finger and criticize. And you're looking from the outside and say, no, no, you're, you're kind, you're, you're able. You're, and the idea is, well, let's fix that. Let's get the right voice within. Uh, the problem with that is that it uh, leads to what we see just even cartoons. Very young kids understand this, that the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other, you know, goofy with horns and goofy with a halo. You know, what you're feeding is this kind of idea that you'll be a powerful, whole, effective person when you have that clear, positive vision of yourself that never wavers. That's a fantasy. That doesn't exist in anybody. If you know anybody well from the inside, and you know yourself pretty well from the inside, you know that's not true. And the only way to get that even close to true is unhealthy. But from the outside, man... Look at that person. They're so confident. They never show anything like what I'm feeling. And you feel alone in that. Right. And you, you go for what you think would get you that. Turns out it's not what's going to get you that. Then what is it that you believe is going to help us? You can change your relationship to your thoughts. Very much like if I put an object on the table here in front of you and say, okay, I don't like that object. If you moved around to the other side of the table and look back, you have a different relationship to it, and it might work in a different way. So what would happen if you took the parts of your history that you don't like when that evaluative part of you, that problem-solving part of you gets involved? I don't like that feeling. I don't like that memory. I don't like that urge. I don't like that sensation. Okay, cool. I get that. What would happen if instead we then took that move of confidence fidelity, faith, whole person, to stand with yourself kindly as you feel, think, remember that. And to connect with the fact that you're doing what everyone else around you is, is dealing with. They're just not talking about it. You're part of a common humanity here. And then to kind of open up your attention. So instead of kind of keeping the lid on and trying to hide we take the lid off and gradually, don't do it all at once, begin to feel those more subtle things, some of which are positive, some of which are negative. You know, one of the things we've found in this is that when you begin to do that, it isn't, the fear would be, oh, I'm going to like let all the monsters out from the basement. The next thing you know, <laughs> I've got like some sort of, you know, horror show of all these, th well, A, you're not feeling or thinking anything you don't already feel and think already. Nothing's going to really surprise you. What? Like you, you didn't, you weren't alive when that happened. You didn't yeah. know that was there. Yeah, you kind of hid it. Yeah. But B, there's other things that are hidden. Like, for example, positive feelings. 
take the, the issue of uh, social anxiety, because I know you, your podcast has a history of really mm-hmm. focusing on that. If you're doing the the push out version of self esteem, if you're you know I only get the positive things. As you do that, you get less and less capacity to actually feel genuine happiness, joy, and connection. And you can see why. This is, has been done experimentally where people are socially anxious and they're trying to you know, make sure it's only the positive things. Well, somebody compliments them. They invite them to come to a party. It's a genuine kind of connection or something. Initially, it's like, woo, that's, but then it's scary. What if I go there and I... So, you know, I'm not able to, yeah, but if I, you know, and all those fears show up, but if I'm not able to, you know, interact with people in a way that they want to continue to be with me, what if that feeling goes away? And so you get this kind of roller coaster thing. So self-compassion is this stance of with kindness and openness and connection to common humanity. Can I feel, think, and remember what I feel, think, and remember. And as you begin to be able to do that with the so-called negative things, it turns out, who knew? You're better able to do it with the positive things too because you hurt where you care. And yeah, you know, the reason why that betrayal really hurt is because love was important to you. The reason why that failure really hurt is you were trying to do something that made a difference and be successful in it. So the both sides, the both and quality of self-compassion gives you a way forward with the whole of you instead of trying to turn yourself into a cartoon that only has one kind of thing and at the cost of you don't get any of it. What you get is a clown suit. If we're celebrating people who have high self-esteem, in a way we're artificially enhancing the self-esteem to create the narcissist, we're celebrating narcissists, which is not a path that, that we need to be elevating. You know, we now have done the studies where we've followed thousands of people over four, five, ten years. We know what happens if you are more open, accepting, mindful, self-compassionate. Is that you put yourself on a positive life trajectory. Not because it's all flowers and, you know, sweet-smelling things and, you know, the music plays. No. It's because you have the flexibility to take a punch, to learn from it, to orient your attention towards what really matters in your life and to get your feet linked to that. And you start building a life worth living one step at a time. You're never finished. You don't get an award. You know, there's not a certificate at the end. This is a journey, but it's a positive journey. And I think you can define that positivity this way. Are you, over some reasonable period of time, because your mind will trick you with the immediate pop over just a matter of hours and minutes and so forth when you do these artificial things. Over weeks and months, are you getting a greater sense of a space within which you can live your life, focus what's important, and actually move towards that with the whole of your history? No subtraction, no deletion, with the memories you've got, the feelings you've got, the thoughts that you've got, and the ones that will be created as you create a new journey, you may have relationships that work in a way that relationships never did before. And that may be a kind of sense of intimacy and love that you haven't experienced before. I'm not saying, you know, you should just uh, accept what you got, period, and start. No, it's a matter of the the message that's inside the word acceptance, which was uh, meant to receive is just to receive a gift, and we still have it in English, and they say, here, will you accept this? Life is asking you, here, will you accept this? And that this is your past. 
If you can say yes to that, well, then you can accept what's ahead of you in the future too. And that means you can afford the risk to care, to love, to connect, to create, to do new things, to take new trajectories in life. And so this isn't just kind of a, a dream. There's too many studies now, too much data. I think we, we can bring something to the table as psychologists, speaking from my profession, a lot wiser than the, uh, the self-esteem movement. There's a really sweet piece of people doing act exercises that involve digging down to a self-critical thought and putting it to a single word and only doing this when they're really fed up, you're done. I'm not, I'm not buying into this anymore. Writing it out in big bold letters and sticking it on your chest. And so it's this piece of social media where you get to see people's insights and it's profoundly moving. I mean, I, I defy you to look at it without tearing up. And what you see is that the person next to you, someone so confident, etc., you know, has this I'm unlovable thing inside or, you know, I'm a liar or, you know, nobody wants to be with me. I'm alone. In, and could what would happen if we allowed our insides to come out? Could we create a community in which people could be whole human beings? I think that's possible. We could create a safe place where that's possible. It doesn't always have to be the, here's the picture of the beach and the, the, the date and the car. and the, No, it could also be, here's the picture of what it's sometimes like to be inside my head. Wow, that guy's a walking encyclopedia. I loved everything he shared about acceptance, commitment therapy. I know we've been using it inside of our boot camps over the last decade. It was great to finally have him in studio. Yeah, he is such a chill guy, and I'm sure we're going to be hearing from him a lot more. If you want to learn more about acceptance and commitment therapy, you should definitely check out that episode. It is episode 729. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all gonna give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. All right. Next up, Mr. Oren Clough. For a lot of our listeners and also our clients who come through the program, they think it's really two different playing fields. You got to be a certain way in the boardroom and a certain way socially. And you kind of break through that in understanding some of these frames that work in both settings. You have a new book coming out, The User's Guide to Power. You're an investor, a venture capitalist who's raised more than $2 billion with your novel approach to understanding the prehistoric part of our brain, the croc brain, as you call it. So thank you for joining us. We have a few well, you questions need, you here. You need to be careful thanking it because I got 50 minutes here. You might be, uh, uh, the, you might not be so appreciative by the time I leave. Well, we uh, heard we have three hours, right? There's no outs, yeah. so <laughs> we're going to keep going. But let's delve first into this understanding of the brain because I think for a lot of us, especially when we're thinking about having to impress other people, win a deal, we go right into analysis, right? We got to come up with all the facts, all the data, all the figures, the PowerPoint slides to, to make that deal work. And you have a totally different approach to it. I do. I do. And it's funny. Other people are starting to think this way as well. So I read this book, Sapiens, right? Yeah. Really yeah. good. You guys uh, read that. And uh, he makes the point which I ran into quite a few years ago of how do you access the mind of a human, right? And and how do you touch someone's soul? Well, when they cut people over open, there's no mind. I can't find a mind. Like you dig in there is a brain, there's blood vessels, and there's all these systems. And when they cut people over the open, there's no soul. They can't find it no matter where they look. So I met a cognitive psychologist. I hired him. And, I, and he said, look, you don't understand how the brain works. And I go, ah, I've studied psychology. My mom's a clinical psychologist. My dad's a sociologist. I've read every book. I've, you know, got $100 million of sales uh, in my past. He goes, you don't understand how the mind works, how the brain works. I go, well, I understand it. You know, you, you have psychology and people want what they can't have. And there's time constraints and there are all these things that persuade people. He goes, you don't understand how the brain works. So then I stopped talking started listening, which is hard to do, as you all know. He said, look, I'm a cognitive psychologist. I only care about how information, I don't care about emotions and feelings and whether you love somebody or hate somebody. Like cognitive psychologists just care 
about how information moves through the brain yes. and what it does when it's in there and how pieces of information are broken up, reassembled, come out, the confusion that that creates and the opportunities that creates for, for clarity and persuasion. But how does information move through the brain? So information moves through the brain um, through a couple large pieces that exist. So so uh, as human beings develop, the brain didn't you know grow like a strawberry, right? Like a small strawberry or like a squirrel, <laughs> small squirrel, then a medium-sized squirrel, and then a large squirrel. That's not how the brain developed. It developed as a very primitive uh, tool to keep a organism alive, right? And so as we became Homo erectus, and we fell out of the trees in in the in Africa and started running through the savanna. And the part of the brain that really kept us alive and was most dominant was the crocodile brain, and that's sort of back behind in the nape of your neck, and that's the brainstem. And it really, to simplify it, the croc brain really only cares about a very limited number of things. It meets you and you start going, oh, the ROI on this project and the IRR is 18% and the downside protection um, is, is uh, you know, there's no way you can lose your money and the upside is uh, 2X on your money within three years and we're a SaaS application that is a new kind of dating app for grandmothers and squirrels, <laughs> whatever it is. And then, so the the actual physical part of the mind of the other person that's listening to you is thinking, huh, here's something that's moving and making noise, right? Is this something I should eat? Is this something I should fuck? Is this something I should kill? Right? I got to answer with those three questions, right. right? And that's the first part of the brain that processes anything you're saying. And so you got to move your information past that very aggressive part of the brain in, up into the midbrain is the next place where this information physically gets to. And in the midbrain, it only cares really about social status. Are you somebody that can help me move up in society to where things are easier to get? Can, or can you sanction me like a police officer? Or do you have to do what I say? And can I sanction you? And unless that other person believes you're a peer to them, or you're more, or you're higher up the social hierarchy, the dominance hierarchy than them, they won't pay attention to you. And they feel like they have power over you. So it's very interesting. When somebody thinks they have power over you or they're better than you or they're higher in the dominance hierarchy than you, a few things happen. Their, their ability to focus narrows, right? So they don't see things broadly. Their appreciation of you is literally skin deep. They can only see you at a very surface level. And more importantly, they, they take risky behaviors around you and with you because they feel like they're in a powerful position. They see you narrowly, they only see you at a surface level, and they behave and they load up on risk around you. So maybe that means they're looking at their phone or taking phone calls or not paying attention at all. So until they believe you're a peer or you're superior to them in the social hierarchy, they can't pay any attention to you. So you got to get past the midbrain, and only then you get to the neocortex. And the neocortex is the part of the brain that really can appreciate the things that you're saying about your idea, your project, yourself, uh, you know, whatever it is. And so that's how information moves to the brain. Until you understand that, you um, you can't organize your persuasion, your ideas, the things you want to say correctly because you're trying to get right into the neocortex and the neocortex does not want to hear about the things that you've got to say immediately. You have to earn your way up to that part of the brain. You know, it was interesting upon reading that in your book, the first thing I was, was thinking about was some studies that I saw that if you put a mouse in a new environment, before that mouse eats, drinks, sleeps, does anything else, it has to go around the whole room and investigate it until it feels safe to do those other things. 
So until that brain feels safe in that in that environment where you're pitching and, and throwing all these ideas out, it has to feel good of who you are, what's going on, and and quell that that part of its the, all those questions that it's dealing with. Yeah. So you're that mouse in a way because you go into a meeting and what mm-hmm. do you do? You talk about fucking skiing. Fishing in Florida, vacation. Did you see uh, the the Super Bowl? Uh, did you watch the playoff game? Right. Uh, oh, it sure is hot. It sure is cold. Can you believe these politicians? Well, you know. So, so the reason you're seeking rapport in this way, of course, is to find a safe space mm-hmm. to then for that social acceptance to where you can start to give your pitch, your presentation, sell your ideas. So that you'll see that in other people looking for safety before they start to even feel like they can sell or pitch, mm-hmm. whatever it is. We, we crave that feeling of safety, and that is this uh, crock brain looking to be calm before information can move past it. Absolutely. And so in social relationships, in deals, there's, there's one person who is the most important and one person who is the supplicant, who is trying to get in the deal. And we're all wired to feel like the investor or the buyer is the prize that I'm trying to win, the Cracker Jack prize. That's where it comes from, right? I want to dig in this box and win the prize. I want to perform and win in the prize. American Idol, right? I sing for the judges. Mm -hmm. The investor, we frame up in our mind as the person who will judge our performance and what it is we have against the other contestants in order to give us something. Right. And so I feel like we need to break that frame and and frame ourselves as the prize. I'm the person that the buyer is lucky to be spending time with. I'm deciding if the buyer can get in my deal. I'm deciding whether to take the investor or not. So how do you organize that in your mind? Well, the way I feel about it and the way I organize the, the prize frame is that money is a commodity. I can get it anywhere. Mm-hmm. And so if all the buyer can give me is money and I can get money anywhere, the opportunity is to buy my product, to work with me, to invest in my deal. I'm the thing that so money needs deals and money needs products to buy. And so I'm the thing that the buyer prizes highly. I know more about my subject and my business than anyone. We work harder at it than anyone. If they go with a competition, they're not going to get as good a product and service as working with us. I'm fun to work with. I'm fair. If something needs to be done on a Sunday night, I'm there. You know, I'm fortunate. I would love to do. Don't stop when I'm tired. I stop when I'm done. Sometimes I bid things incorrectly. I still finish the work. And so the buyer or the investor is incredibly lucky to be working with me. We have the best product. I know this better than anybody else. And the only thing they can give me is money, and I can get money anywhere. And so that organizes in my mind that I'm the prize, and they need to be doing things to prove that they're worthy of working with me. And so so then you go, well, that seems, you know, maybe for you, you're establishing everything. But what young people have to realize is that if you take a bad investor or you take a bad customer, it's worse than having no customer or no investor at all. They can ruin your life. Thank you. They can Mm -hmm. completely ruin your life. So it's true. You do have to test. You do have to interrogate. You do have to prove out the customer that he's going to pay on time, that if he's going to order large volumes, that he's going to be there two years from now. You know, today in most businesses, you lose money 
you know, on a transaction, even in the car business, on the first transaction, you make money over time with that customer. You choose a bad customer, right? And you only last two or three months, you know, you have the potential to lose money. So we do have to commoditize the buyer and recognize that our time, our product, our ability is the prize in the relationship. And some of our listeners right now are going, well, wait a second. I'm not in the deal business. I, I don't really understand why social yeah. skills podcasts were talking about this, but yeah, yeah, these yeah. frames that you're talking about are the same thing that we do mm -hmm. when we're pitching ourselves to the yeah. opposite sex or we're yeah. pitching ourselves to friends. We yeah. talk about power and status, but motivation of not being lonely, of having someone to marry, having friends in my life is also a very powerful motivator. And the frames that you talk about in the book, you know, starting first with that fun, right? Your mentor taught you that having a sense of humor, even in a room where there's billions of dollars on the line, and there are people with higher status, your ability to come in and inject humor breaks that tension, starts to build a little bit of trust starts to win them over, even if it's slight. And in teaching this for over a decade now, that is the exact same frame we talk about when we're socializing. People are out to have a good time. People want and expect a good time. And if you come supplicating, needy, trying to get fun from someone else, well, they're not interested. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, yeah, how I think it applies to every social situation is when you come in and are asking for anything – emotion, when you're asking for your validation, when you're asking for money, it makes you lower on the dominance hierarchy. So some ways I think about it like this, and this is in the new book as well. If you go back 250, 300,000 years into forming societies, you were born and you had two jobs to live to the age of 13 to 15. That was job one. Right. And people around you tried to help you do that. And that was not a sure thing. Right. Your second job was to procreate and have an offspring. So so to to um, expand the gene pool. Right. After that, you were completely useless to society. And the thing you would be given to do would be either uh, as a as a soldier or as a workman. Right. So 25 percent of the male population was cleared off the bottom of the society every year. It was the bottom of the social food chain of the social ladder of the dominance hierarchy was the worst place to be. And so it, we started to form in our minds the urgency for moving up the social hierarchy, the dominance hierarchy, because the bottom of the dominance hierarchy meant um, um, almost certain death, misery, yep. death, disease, decrepitness, stress, stress yeah. short life, hunger, uh, did I leave anything out? Um, Big recovery. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so anybody who seems like they will um, bring you down or are lower than you, you did not want to um, coordinate with or collaborate with. You were trying to move up the social hierarchy, right? And if somebody appeared to be slightly below you or below you, you wanted to stay clear of them in your clawing your way up the social ladder. And so when you come in and you act needy or you feel like you're going to take energy, you're going to take emotion or you don't have things to give or you don't have relationships to offer or you don't have things to, to give and, and benefit, then you appear to be low on the dominance hierarchy and people want to steer clear of you as they claw 
climb, scratch up the the social ladder to the top where things are easy, where the women are, where the food is, where the money is. So obviously there's this plethora of power frame that we could work with, but you know, this in its nature and deal making is a little adversarial. You know, how do you deal with your spouse and your kids when obviously going for the power frame is not gonna win you much favor in the household? Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, so, so one of my key topics is conflict. All right. And so I am constantly creating and solving conflict because you can't have any good, you can't have a 30 second commercial. That's good. You can't have a three minute video. You can't have a movie. You can't have a TV show without generating conflict. So it can be resolved. So, I'll tie this back into humans as well. Whenever you hear about human conflict or you see people fighting or arguing, or it draws our attention immediately. So if you hear two people are outside in the office, you know, fighting, you, I don't sure. care what you're doing. You're doing, you're in a million dollar Bitcoin trade. You're like, ah, you know, you got to run outside and see what this fight is about. Right. The best shows generate conflict that then needs to be resolved. So humans, are attracted to conflict and pay attention to it because it is a simulation for arguments and life situations that we want to learn about how people resolve conflict without having to be in it, right? Because it was in, in the past, again, 200,000 years ago, uh, it was extremely dangerous to be in any kind of conflict with any other human, right? Because the way we resolve conflict is by killing each other. 25% of the entire male, male population, as I said, was wiped off the face of the earth every single year at that time. So anytime you saw conflict, you immediately rushed to and see how those people resolved it as a sort of simulation engine. So you would know when you got into a similar kind of conflict, how you could get out of it. So conflict attracts us immediately and creates attention. So when I see people come in and pitch deals as young people, old people, medium people, the thing that's missing is tension. It's right. The deal is sweet, saccharine, sticky. Everything's beautiful. It's nirvana. Nothing is going to go bad. It's a perfect product for the perfect market, for the perfect people with the perfectly terrible non-existent competition at the perfect price point with huge margins. And, and it's all idealistic, right? And so that's sweet. And then when you, there's no tension. And so if you think about any joke, any story that you have uh, has, has three steps to it, right? It's got setup, path to payoff and payoff. Whenever you look at a path to pay off in a joke, in a movie, in a TV show, that is about creating tension, right? So payoff or satisfaction is about resolving tension. Any deal that you propose, any relationship that you start to enter has got to have some tension so it can be resolved for satisfaction. That is why, you know, if you're watching a movie and a guy goes up to the bar and he says, to uh, you know, says to a woman, "Hey, can I buy you a drink?" Oh, that's a beautiful dress. Um, you know, what are you doing in town? And and the woman responds, "Oh, hi, my name is Susan. Nice to meet you." Anybody who's ever been in a bar goes, "That doesn't happen, <laughs> right?" <laughs> Except to Brad Pitt or whatever. Maybe not even to Brad. Like that's not how it works, right? So so if there's nothing, no conflict, no tension, nothing to resolve 
then humans don't have anything to do in a relationship. And in a deal, in a relationship, there has to be uh, some tension, some conflict. Now, uh, you know, that can be ta- can't be taken as aggressive or mean or, um, you know, deprecating or, or cruel, but it gives something to discuss, right? So whenever you see a relationship that hasn't worked out, ask yourself, you know, was there a setup? Sure. Was there conflict? And then was the conflict resolved? And I bet the conflict was missing. So with your spouse and kids, you're constantly setting conflict yeah. and waiting for the resolution? Uh, um, I do, yes. It is one of the uh, criticisms of my personality is I uh, create conflict around the house so we can have fun and resolve it. And uh, yes, for sure. So what's an example of a, a recent conflict that... Uh, Maybe have gotten you in a little hot water. Uh, well, I mean, I think we talked about it earlier. So, you know, I, I built uh, this monster truck for our four-year-old. And, and I remember it, it came around the corner. Of, it, was his, it was his birthday. It was three. And we were, you know, I had somebody drive it up. And I got, come on, guys, come outside. And the monster truck drove around the corner. And it showed up. And my wife and our f- then three-year-old looking at it. And the three-year-old's going nuts, right? And he's so happy. And uh, my wife looks at it. And she looks at me and she goes, that better be a rental. <laughs> I was an amazing podcast as well. He was so much fun. We certainly learned a lot about the croc brain. Not to mention how to frame things properly and how important it is for you to understand that you are always pitching yourself, whether it's in that boardroom, whether it's out on the street, whenever we're meeting people for the first time, having that pitch ready is fantastic. Those are some great tools for the workplace and even in your personal life. So be sure to check out that full episode if you have it at number 714. Thanks for hanging out with us this year. We loved having you chime in with questions and thoughts and all the interaction. Thanks for the support. We're looking forward to 2019. And listen up. We're going to be tackling a lot of new material for next year, and we want to include you in that process. So let us know what you want us to cover in 2019. You can drop us a line at theartofcharm.com slash questions. You can also find us on Instagram at theartofcharm. Plus, I'm there as... AOC Johnny and AJ's there too at AJ Harbinger. If you're digging the show, leave us a review. Head on over to iTunes, find our podcast, The Art of Charm, and share your thoughts. Heading into 2019, we are continuing to improve our podcast, so your feedback matters to us. The Art of Charm podcast, as always, produced by Chris Olin with production assistance from Michael Harold. Our show is recorded at Cast Media Studios in sunny Hollywood, California. Engineered by... Br- Engineered by Danny Luver and Bradley Denham. I'm AJ. And I'm Johnny. Thanks for supporting us in 2018. We can't wait for you to join us in 2019. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. And you saw-